listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. In the years between the world wars, the term revisionist came to be used to describe a group of scholars led by James Randall who argued that the Civil War was not necessary or inevitable. Today, the term revisionist is tossed around by ignorant radio talk show hosts to mean someone you disagree with. But every once in a while, we find someone who is a true modern revisionist, who challenges the mode, who makes original arguments. We have one like that for our guest today. His name is William Marvel, and he'll be with us in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Marissa, are you ready yet? I know you can hear me. You are not missing school again. Marissa! You trying to be a nobody or something? Let's go! Alright then. Hit it. I know you can hear this. Hey guys, move closer. Girl, I am not leaving. Hey, whatever it takes, don't let your friends drop out. A real friend can make all the difference. Cut that noise, yo! I'm coming! Took you long enough. Thanks for the help, guys. For more ways to help, go to OperationGraduation.com. A public service message from the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, the Brewster Building, the third floor on the north uh, west end of campus, I think. Which direction are we facing here? No, we're on the east side. Never mind. Um, somewhere, somewhere on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking on behalf of the university, which goes its own way, in spite of its renewed commitment this year to the concept of shared governance. Uh, still, it speaks its own mind, and I speak mine. The two are not the same. Although I am using the phone uh, and computer and other tools of the trade, it, it's it's all independent intellectual work as are the words of our guest and World Truck Radio and everybody else. So legal things out of the way, we will move forward. Uh, a reminder that uh, World Talk Radio is the, uh, the home network of, of the show and looks like it will continue to be that way for, uh, for some time in the future, which is very good news. And we look forward to having uh, 
a Civil War-related sponsor to help defray the show costs in the near future. And uh, that will be, uh, I think, uh, a positive step for, for everybody and hopefully something a way that uh, the show can contribute back to the Civil War community at the same time. So we'll, we'll look forward to that. And uh, if we get to replace the, the anti-dropout commercials with something more, uh, more suited to our audience, that would be ideal, too. In the meantime, uh, while we're engaged in self-promotion, a reminder about the book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, my own book, uh, published this past January 2008, uh, continues to surge up the books about Lincoln list on Amazon. Uh, every time someone buys one, it leaps thousands of places, which is uh, very gratifying. Uh, still, it never gets higher than fifth or sixth on the list because the first four places are nailed down by, of course, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, wonderful book, Team of Rivals, uh, the paperback edition, followed uh, closely by Team of Rivals, the uh, hardcover edition, and Team of Rivals, the electronic edition, Team of Rivals, the audio edition, Team of Rivals, the large print edition. Doris is a one-woman publishing empire, and no one can touch her. Uh, but after she's got the first five or six slots nailed down, it's all up for grabs. And did Lincoln Own Slaves continues to compete? If you're in the southeast quadrant of the United States, uh, come by and see me uh, tomorrow, Saturday, March 1st, 2008, at Longwood University in Farmville, Virginia. I've been announcing it as at Appomattox, which our guest today can tell us is not the same as Farmville. They're close but not quite. Uh, it'll be the Longwood Seminar annual event, uh, a free seminar with some very interesting speakers. Don Collins, a former guest on the show, will be talking about Jefferson Davis, and there will be other people uh, talking about Lincoln, and I'll say a few words about Lincoln and answer in the negative once again the question, did he own slaves? I'll also be uh, appearing March 5th, Wednesday, at the Barnes & Noble bookstore right here in Greenville, North Carolina. So if you're that close, uh, come on by and uh, buy two or three copies. I'll sign them all differently, and you can give them for Christmas presents. Hello. Oh, I'm I'm Bill. Are you there? I am. Yeah. You are. I'm 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 chatting away. Uh, this is Jerry, and I uh, entertain myself. Uh, since no one pays me for the show, I figure it's my damn show. <laughs> I can just talk all I want, uh, and I usually start out that way. But after I've tried the listeners' patience and yours long enough, it's time to bring on the guest. Well, what I what I was questioning was the sudden silence that I heard. It was just me taking a deep breath and sort of looking around the office and trying to figure out where do we go next. You'll you'll hear me taking a few deep breaths too. Well, you're more than welcome to, and I'm, I'm delighted to have you on the show. Um, uh, you and I have not met before, but I, I know you through your work, and I'm, I'm very pleased that you're able to be with us today. Well, I'm happy to be here. Um, now, you're you're up in New Hampshire, as I understand. and uh, I am. You know, we're freezing down here in North Carolina. It's like in the high 30s today. Um, I, uh, oh, I sympathize. Did, I, <laughs> so, it, was, it was zero for us this morning, but... Uh, we were apparently the warm spot. Uh, ah, very good. 20 or 30 below in different places in Maine nearby. Well, that's serious. Where in New Hampshire are you? Um, I'm uh, about midway between the northern, uh, the southern boundary and the Canadian border, and I'm about uh, two, uh, 
well, I'm, I'm one timber lot from the main state line. I'm looking out my back windows at mountains in Maine. Oh, very nice. I've, I've driven through that area. I spent the summer at Lake Winnipesaukee once, uh, which is a little yeah, west then of Then you mean you, you crawled through this area. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it's not, uh, not Formula One high-speed driving. But, uh, but it's a beautiful part of the country, certainly. Well, it, it, I can attest that it was certainly beautiful 45 or 50 years ago. It's, um, it, it's growing more and more uh, suburbanized and homogenized now, I'm afraid. Well, that's unfortunate. It, it, it's noticeable when one crosses the, uh, the state line from Maine, which has the billboard law, uh, into Vermont, or at least it was uh, last time I crossed that line. As I recall, New Hampshire has no laws of any kind. Um, only that you have to carry a firearm. That, that's my understanding. It's sort of a libertarian kind of state. And Maine has a lot of laws. For example, no no billboards on the highways. So it's They can't green. help it. That state was born of Massachusetts. That, that would explain it. Uh, so the two are quite different uh, culturally. And then there's Vermont, another issue altogether, but we'll leave that for another day. Well, let me ask you, uh, since this is Civil War Talk Radio, uh, you, you've written a lot about the Civil War. Uh, is this something that's always interested you? How did you get started in this field? I've been interested in it almost uh, uh, as long as I've been conscious of remembering anything. I, I don't know uh, when it began. I, uh, I usually answer that question by telling the story of my, uh, of my mother um, making a, a special effort when I was about five and we were driving the uh, the coast of Georgia to uh, take me out behind the motel to um, a sort of plantation house where there was a, an old woman sitting on a porch uh, in a chair and uh, and she my mother introduced me to her and the woman asked me how old I was and I told her and she said that uh, when she was my my age she had uh, watched the Confederate army uh, march out of Savannah and watch the Yankees come in wow so uh, it's at least since the age of five, because my mother did that precisely because I was so interested in it. Oh. You know, it, it's just amazing how close we are to the war, isn't it, in terms of generations? Oh, yes. My, my great-grandfather was in the second Delaware. Really? Yeah. Wow. That, that, uh, uh, it, it, it's easy to, to, I suppose, overlook that. It, it, when you have students in a, in a class who's, you mentioned the Vietnam War, and they'll say, oh, my grandfather was in that. <laughs> uh, it, it's shocking to me. Uh, but uh, but the Civil War is not that far away. Uh, uh, well, my father used to uh, uh, sit on the porch of the barbershop in Orleans, Massachusetts, out on Cape Cod, and listen to uh, Civil War soldiers uh, telling their stories, and, and whalers, for that matter, from the 1850s. Wow, but he was he was born in 1909, and uh, so they were you know, they were about retirement age then. But that and that's when people tend to talk, uh, as we're seeing today with the, I suppose the last of the, the Second World War veterans, uh, that, that many of them are telling their stories, recording their stories mm-hmm. after being reticent about it for many years. I'd never asked my father the questions I should have about his experience in World War II. Uh, and and it's too late now, but that, that seems to be a life cycle pattern uh, for veterans. Well, everyone. either they go either one way or the other. I suspect they become more uh, garrulous and gregarious, or they uh, hole up and become hermits. Uh, that and that can happen too. 
so so you've always been uh, uh, interested in the war. Did you did you think you would write about it? Did you make a well? I I was writing about it by the time I was eleven or twelve. I had uh, I had all sorts of uh, fictional enterprises, uh, some of which. Uh, uh, ranged uh, to a hundred pages or so by the time I was twelve, uh, but uh, I thought I would probably write historical fiction. I was uh, when I was very young. I was fond of Kenneth Roberts and uh, McKinley Cantor, and so I thought I would write that sort of um, uh, book about the Civil War. And I, I knew that would be the period because that's what I knew most about. Uh, but. I found that I was uh, not very good at uh, plot and character development, and uh, the truth is often uh, more interesting than fiction, as it turns out, and sometimes more bizarre. And uh, as I tried to improve my uh, the accuracy of the history in my historical fiction, the fiction sort of atrophied, and uh, the next thing I knew I was writing history, and suddenly, finally, somebody wanted to uh, wanted to publish it. Did you undertake any formal training in history? No, well, I have a BA from a state college, but um, I just uh, I took that because history was what I was interested in. It was uh, it was in the mid seventies. There wasn't a lot of work around here, and so I uh, I went to school and uh, and did that for a few years. But uh, afterward, I uh, worked at a series of blue-collar jobs. I was a, a stable manager at a ranch down in, in uh, southern New Hampshire, and I worked on uh, different kinds of farms around here, but I, at night and weekends I would write. And uh, I did that for about oh, 10 years, uh, that and carpentry in the daytime. And uh, then around 1990 I started writing uh, full-time. Uh, have been ever since. Uh, what was your first uh, Civil War publication, or first book published, I should say? Uh, well, the, the first book published was a, uh, a battery history of the first New Hampshire battery. Like most people, I, I took an interest in my local area, and uh, uh, while I was in college, in fact, and, and the summer after, I wrote a, a history of the Ninth New Hampshire but it was you know, 600 pages long, and no one was interested in doing anything that big. So uh, I tried again on a smaller scale, yeah. and uh, and so those were my uh, first two books out. When when uh, the Battery History came out, um, Tom Broadfoot um, showed an interest in it, and he published the uh, Regimental History. Yeah. And after that, it was uh, just a matter of uh, following the path of least resistance, uh, you know, the course of the war that uh, the 9th New Hampshire uh, followed, the, the, the regiment that I wrote about. I uh, followed that, which led to Burnside and the crater and that sort of thing. Well, I'm struck uh, frequently on the show how many guests who've written really interesting books are not uh, traditionally trained historians. Uh, a lot of lawyers uh, show up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lonnie Spear has written some interesting books on the uh, prisons. prisons. Yeah. That he's uh, he's at Western Carolina University, the other end of the state, mm-hmm. but he's not in the history department. He's a groundskeeper there, mm-hmm. and he, he's outpublished uh, a lot of the professors there. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's not his full time job. He, he 
he does it when he's not cutting the grass, and he's written some excellent stuff. And there, there's something about the Civil War that, that you don't find the same, same kind of passion, uh, people you know, coming home from uh, a different job and then writing about, uh, I don't know, the, the Second Great Awakening. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't happen. Uh, no, I, I, I don't know what the, uh, uh, what the drive is. Uh, I suspect it may have something to do with uh, uh, many of us having lived through the centennial. And uh, and that and the uh, um, the benefit of having uh, read Bruce Catton, I think, inspired a lot of people, uh, at least of my generation and and a little younger, and older for that matter. Uh, I, I would count myself among them. I, I have faint memories of the the uh, centennial, but Bruce Catton was certainly an influence. Mm-hmm. So you wrote, uh, well, let's talk about some, some of the many books you wrote about. Uh, Burnside, for example. Um, here, here's someone who uh, uh, would be an interest. Now, I will confess to not having read your Burnside biography, so I'm just asking Cold, uh, what's your take on him? Well, uh, originally I, I expected that I was going to uh, have to spend my time explaining why someone uh, who seemed so intelligent and competent uh, managed to blunder so frequently and so badly. But uh, now I've come to view him as someone who was more often, um, who more often acted competently and well um, and who was uh, instead failed by others or blamed by others uh, who may have been at fault. Although... He um, he obviously had his own faults, and I I certainly am not very uh, I'm not very apologetic uh, about his uh, his manhandling of uh, Clement Vallandigham and his uh, disdain for um, civil rights uh, even in the middle of a civil war. Uh, but uh, I I view him as a uh, um, more maligned uh, than malignant and. Uh, and I think he was. I also liked him. I mean, I thought he was. Uh, you know, he was a very generous, uh, loyal friend to his friends. Uh, in in fact, uh, that's part of the reason sometimes that he was uh, uh, he was deemed so uh, so much a failure himself because he tried to cover for his subordinates. Well, he he was one of the few uh, high level generals who who had. Let's call it the gift of, of self-knowledge. Who, who who knew he wasn't really qualified to command a whole army, and or at least told Lincoln that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, diffidence uh, was uh, one of his uh, character traits. Uh, it usually isn't in a soldier, uh, at least not as often as it should be. Yeah, you see, others. I suppose uh, George Thomas comes to mind as someone who shared that, mm-hmm. uh, at least. Uh, yeah, it was not overly ambitious uh, and well, stayed he, within his limits. Right. Certainly when uh, when he was asked to uh, take command from Buell uh, before Perryville, um, he was very selfless and, uh, and I think, uh, realistic. Um, he, um, he knew that uh, Buell had begun a campaign and that he would have to uh, work with uh, what Buell had uh, started. Um, but he was—he uh, didn't have the overweening ambition of uh, of many of our uh, generals on both sides. No, definitely not. 
We're going to take a short break. We'll come right back in a minute. Our guest today is William Marvel, author of many books. We'll talk about several more of them when we come back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. 